Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. We all make mistakes, decisions that we regret, things we'd like to do over, like not buying Bitcoin when you first heard about it at $1. We all carry around different stresses, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. At times, therapy has helped me and my loved ones in many ways. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. With the right guide, you can discover effective strategies to minimize distractions and truly connect with your needs, setting the stage for a more balanced life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge take a moment visit betterhelp.com gold today to get 10 percent off your first month that's betterhelp help.com slash gold the peter schiff show Today, the Federal Reserve did exactly what everybody expected that they would do. They once again raised interest rates by just one quarter of 1%. This is the third rate hike of the year. This is the fourth rate hike since Donald Trump was elected president and the fifth time the Fed has raised rates since the 2008 financial crisis or since a couple years before the financial crisis. Remember, they only raised raised once during the time from Obama's election until Trump's election eight years later. So we've had these four rate hikes. We now are at one and a quarter percent on the low end to one and a half percent. So if you take the midpoint there, 1.35%, I mean, we're barely above 1%. Despite five rate hikes over the course of more than two years, remember the first rate hike was in December, 2015. So it's been actually exactly two years. And it's taken the Federal Reserve two years to move the rate from zero to 1.35. This is an extraordinary amount of excess uh, monetary stimulus. Uh, To say that the Fed has been successful in normalizing rates uh, is complete nonsense. Two years ago, when the Fed raised rates for the first time, nobody in the mainstream believed that two years later we would still be this low. Now, of course, the Fed is pretending that they're going to raise rates another three times next year. Of course, Janet Yellen will not be the chairman. This is her last uh, quarterly press conference. I mean, she's still the Fed chairman through January. But the next time the Federal Reserve has a press conference, 
And the next time they, in theory, raise rates, Powell will be the new um, uh, chair of the Federal Reserve and Janet Yellen will be off giving speeches at a quarter million dollars a pop, uh, just like Ben Bernanke. Of course, the markets reacted the way I thought they were going to react, at least the currency markets and the foreign exchange markets. It's always buy the rumor, sell the fact. The December rate hike had been out there for a long time, and so currency traders had more than enough time to anticipate the hike. And so when the Fed uh, you know, realized those expectations, the dollar tanked. The dollar was down across the board. Dollar index was down uh, almost uh, 0.7, so about three quarters of 1%. But some individual currencies were up quite a bit more. I think the New Zealand dollar was up about 1.5% today. Aussie dollar, maybe a similar move. So you had some oversized moves in some of the currencies. Gold also rose about $11 an ounce. Before the rate hike was announced, we were already up about 2 or $3. And so we added another 8 So they were trying to buy ahead of the news. And in fact, the gold stocks had already anticipated that. When gold was only up 2 or 3 bucks. you had gold stocks that were up maybe 3 4 5%. And then when the announcement came out, they added to their gains. There were some silver stocks that were up better than 10% today. Many gold stocks were up 5 6 7% on the day. So very strong day for the gold stocks. Again, buy the rumor, sell the fact. The Fed finally raised rates. Dollar goes down. Gold goes up. Gold stocks go up. I think there's a lot more coming. I don't think this is a one-day event. Although last December, gold stocks were very weak. Gold was weak. We got the big rebound in the first quarter, which I think is going to happen again this year. I think even if we don't get more follow-through on this move, between now and the, and the end of the year, I think the dollar is going to be extremely weak in 2018. In fact, I think it's going to be weaker in 2018 than it was in, in 2017. And so far, this has been a very, very weak year for the dollar. And of course, the year began with expectations very high. The most crowded trade was long the dollar. And those trades obviously are unwinding. Anybody who is long the dollar going into the year if they're still long, they've lost a lot of money on that trade. And so I, I expect that you're going to see much weaker dollar in 2018 and a much bigger move up in gold and silver prices. Silver was up 35 cents uh, an ounce today, so a bigger percentage gain uh, for silver uh, than, than gold. Of course, the most interesting part of the Fed's announcement is always the press conference that follows. And I listened to most of the press conference. And, you know, the most interesting thing about it is whenever Yellen was asked about inflation or whatever she opined about inflation and what the Fed's concerns might be, the only concern that she ever expresses is that inflation may stay too low. And in fact, that's the only question she gets about inflation. Nobody asks her, hey, what if inflation is, is higher than you think? It's always, what if it doesn't get to 2%? Even though, it's, of course, it's already well above 2%, but everybody wants to pretend it's not. And so the questions are, you know, what if it takes longer to get to 2%? Are you concerned it might not get to 2%? And the answers are, well, you know, we, we think it will get back there. But, you know, yes, we recognize it's a risk that maybe it won't. Right? It never dawns on anybody to actually consider the real risk. The real risk is not that inflation stays below 2%. I mean, that's the ideal situation for the Fed. The risk for the Fed is that inflation goes to 3% or 4%. 
But that possibility isn't even discussed. I mean, I, I know why, because they can't deal with that, because what would they do? And I wish somebody would ask Yellen, what is your plan? What are you going to do if inflation surprises you by spiking up? What if it jumps up to 3 or 4%? What's she going to say? Oh, we're going to slam on the brakes? We're going to jack interest rates way up? What's going to happen to the stock market? What's going to happen to the bond market? What's going to happen to the economy? In fact, Steve Leisman asked her a question about the elevated level of the stock market, about how the stock market's going up every day, 100 points a day. And he asked her, are you worried about this? Does this concern the Fed, right? That you have these elevated asset prices and, you know, they might come down. And basically she told him that, no, the Fed's not worried at all. She said, not only do we not see any flashing red lights, we don't even see any flashing orange lights, right? There's nothing to worry about. And she specifically said that this is very different than it was last time, right? This time it's different because she said last time when we had an elevated stock market or a real estate market, it was because we had too much credit. We had too much debt, but that we don't have that today, that we don't have excessive debt this time, like we said last time. I mean, is she kidding me? We actually have more debt. We are more deeply indebted. Now, this is a bigger bubble, right? That has been fueled by even more cheap money. I mean, the Fed is force-feeding cheap money into the economy. Interest rates now are still 1.3%. We've been going on a borrowing binge. Corporations are levered up. They've been buying back stock. Consumer debt is at all-time high. Credit card debt, auto debt, student debt. Government debt is exploding. The national debt is twice as big as it was when we had the 2008 financial crisis. And Yellen is saying that there's nothing to worry about because there's no debt. Because there's no excessive borrowing. And on top of all that, we're about to pass tax cuts, which she acknowledged is going to make the debt problem even worse. I mean, she did say that she's worried that we have too much debt and she's bothered by the fact that we're about to make that problem worse. But, you know, also interesting, Yellen was asked if she thinks that, you know, we're going to get the 4% growth that, you know, the Republicans are talking about. And she said, well, it would be very hard to get that much growth. But the Fed is increasing their growth estimates because of the tax cuts by about 40 basis points. So if the Fed thought the economy was going to grow at 2.1% without the tax cuts, the Fed believes that we'll grow at 2.5% with the tax cuts. So they are giving the tax cuts the benefit of some extra economic growth. But that small amount of economic growth is not nearly as much to produce the revenue that they would need to hold down the big impact that the tax cuts are going to have on the deficit, right? So what the Fed believes is different than what, you know, the president or Congress are telling us that we should believe. But what's interesting is that Yellen and her cronies over at the Fed, they are assuming that we get extra growth from the tax cuts, but they're not assuming that as a result of the extra growth, that interest rates are going to be higher than they otherwise would be or that inflation is going to be higher. So in other words, these, you know, Keynesians, these, you know, Phillips curvers at the Fed are willing to accept the fact that we're going to have higher economic growth, but that economic growth is going to have no impact on inflation, it's going to have no impact on interest rates. 
In fact, one of the things the Fed watches are wages because the Fed thinks that higher wages cause higher inflation. And here you have the Republicans saying that all these tax cuts are going to produce higher wages, which the Fed obviously would believe would bleed into the CPI through the wage price spiral. Yet the Fed is not worried that these higher wages are going to have any impact on inflation or any impact on interest rates, which shows you how ridiculous the whole thing is because the Fed is afraid. Uh, to indicate to the market that it thinks we're going to have higher inflation. It likes the market worrying about inflation being too low because the Fed is scared shitless about inflation being too high or about people figuring out how high inflation is. So this is their ruse, right? If you're really worried about inflation being too high, what do you want to talk about? Whoa, it being too low, right? You want to take the market's attention away from your real concern by creating a straw man phony concern that is not really a concern at all. I mean, how is the Fed going to be hurt if inflation stays at 1%, at least according to the CPI? That's a dream for the Fed because now they can keep on printing money, they can keep interest rates low, and they can postpone having to deal with the consequences of the massive bubble that they've blown in everything, right? So that's the best case scenario. The worst thing for the Fed is that inflation shoots above 2% to the point where now they have to prick their own bubble. Now they have to raise interest rates and now everything comes collapsing. So since that's what they're so afraid of, they never even want to discuss that. They want to keep everybody's attention on this, this, this phony problem of inflation being too low so that they can focus on a goal of trying to have more inflation instead of talking about what they're really worried about is that inflation running out of control. In fact, if you look at the inflation data that we got uh, this week, yesterday, we got the numbers for the producer price index up 3.1% year over year. That's a six-year high in producer price increases, 3.1%. And the Fed is talking about, we're worried that we might not get back up to 2%. Producer prices are already at 3.1%. That's 50% faster than 2%. Now, we got the consumer prices that came out today, and there, uh, the year-over-year increase is uh, not as big. It's 2.2%. But 2.2% is still higher than 2%, right? So year-over-year CPI up 2.2%, and the Fed is still saying, well, you know, maybe we, we're, you know, we're hoping to get it back up to 2%, but we're worried that we won't. It's already 22 But what does that tell you? If producer prices are up 31 and consumers have only been charged 2.2 more, what does that mean? It means producers are eating that, right? Margins are under pressure. Why is the stock market loving this? Companies are the producers. So they're paying the producer prices and they're selling at the consumer prices. And obviously margins must be getting compressed if uh, their costs are going up faster than their prices. And if this continues, what do they have to do? They have to pass on those higher costs by raising their prices. So you would think... The Fed would think, well, if we got producer prices going at 3.1 and consumer prices are 2.2, the consumer prices, right, and they look at this cost push stuff, but they'd have to believe that these higher consumer prices are going to bleed into higher retail prices, especially if you look at the current trajectory of commodities, look at the trajectory of oil, Oil prices getting ready to break out above $60 a barrel. Look at some of these commodity-sensitive stocks and how strong they've been recently. Uh, look, look at what's going on. Look at the dollar. Look at the weakness in the dollar. I mean, one of the reasons that we had lower inflation a few years ago was because the dollar was strong. 
That was, you know, that was keeping inflation in check. But now if the dollar is weakening, that is going to accelerate inflation, right? It means our money is buying less. It means that it costs more. We have to pay more money for stuff when the dollar loses value. So prices are going to go up. And it's not just here. Look what's happening in the United Kingdom. They just came out this week with their CPI, which is up 3.1%. Inflation is at a six-year high in Great Britain. And they still got interest rates even lower than ours, right? And those guys are still talking about, oh, inflation is too low. It's at a six-year high. You know, where's it going from there? It's going up. Right? Inflation is just getting started. This genie is just out of the bottle, right? And it is going to be the big story, I think, of uh, 2018. I wonder if when we have the elections, and I'm going to get into the politics in a minute, but I wonder if the misery index is going to come back. Because obviously, interest rates, they probably aren't going to be that high, but inflation is really going to pick up. And I wonder if we can get a pickup in unemployment as well, because clearly that is a risk. But the Fed can't do anything about that. That's why they don't want to discuss it. You know, one of the other interesting aspects of this uh, press conference was that Janet Yellen got not one, not two, but three questions about Bitcoin. And I don't know if she's ever been asked about Bitcoin press conference before, but, you know, the fact that now Bitcoin is the topic of conversation at a Fed press conference, again, another sign uh, that this bubble is, you know, potentially reaching a peak now that there is so much discussion about it. It has reached, you know, all facets uh, of uh, financial media. And, you know, Janet Yellen was very dismissive of uh, Bitcoin as far as its potential. Uh, she said it's it's not a legal tender. It's not a store of value. It is a highly speculative asset, which is, you know, one of the few things that Yellen has said that I actually agree with. Uh, she's right there. And she says the only concern the Fed has over Bitcoin is to make sure that banks are doing their proper anti-money laundering uh, you know, routine when dealing with the cryptocurrency. And that's it. And she's not worried if it collapses and investors lose money. That's not a concern of hers because she doesn't think it would affect the overall financial system. And there she's probably right. You know, the banks are not levered up to Bitcoin. They haven't made loans um, backed by Bitcoin collateral. Now, there are people who have bought Bitcoin who have taken out mortgages against their homes to buy Bitcoin, but they've only pledged their house. So if the Bitcoin collapses, the bank doesn't have to worry. They don't foreclose on the Bitcoin. They just foreclose on the house. So, you know, they don't have uh, the risk. The individual has the risk. And yes, I mean, obviously, if some individuals lose money, uh, that could be negative for the economy. But I don't think the loss, I mean, it's not like you have people taking out loans against their Bitcoins like they did against their houses and spending it. A lot of the wealth that people have made on Bitcoins is just on paper and, you know, easy come, easy go. And so a lot of people who are fantasizing about all the things they're going to buy with their Bitcoin fortunes. So when the market collapses, so the fantasies go away. It doesn't have as much of an impact on the real economy. But the important point is that they discussed it. They spent so much time uh, talking about Bitcoin, which had another volatile day today. You know, it was up well above 17,000 again, and then it dropped, you know, 1,500 or so back 15,000. And as I'm recording this, I think we've recovered uh, almost all of those interday losses again. But who knows where it'll be by the time anybody listens to this? We're now at about sixteen thousand two fifty, so only off about four hundred on uh, on the day. You know, while I'm on the topic of uh, of Bitcoin too, I was watching on today today on CNBC. I was watching a woman 
who was on the board of Coinbase, which is one of the, um, the big uh, you know, exchanges for Bitcoin. And she also happened to work for the, uh, for the government, for the Justice Department, in the uh, enforcement coordinator for, for Bitcoin, right? So they've, obviously they've got an entire division at the Justice Department dealing with uh, you know, cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. And during the interview, one of the people from CNBC mentioned to her that, you know, Bitcoin, you know, can be used in, in crimes. And, you know, it's, you know, it's, it, 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 that's part of the problem because you have the illegal activity. And what her response was, was that, no, she said, the idea that Bitcoin is anonymous and ideal for criminals is wrong. She said that she has been involved in Justice Department, uh, you know, prosecutions where the primary evidence used to convict was Bitcoin where she said, had the criminals not used Bitcoin, we might not have been able to convict them. But using Bitcoin made it actually easier. It's almost like a, like a, a digital fingerprint that, that connects the criminal to, to, to the crime. And so she was saying, hey, if you're a criminal and you think you're getting away with something by using Bitcoin, think again, right? You're actually incriminating yourself by using Bitcoin. Now, of course, that was the only real use case for the cryptocurrency. I always acknowledged from the very beginning that criminals could find value. I said that you know people that are looking for a real, you know, to have legitimate transactions above the board, that Bitcoin would never work as money. And they all admit that now. I mean, it's way too expensive. In fact, you know, I remember, you know, they said, oh, you know, look how expensive it is to use MasterCard. If you want to buy something for $100, you know, it's 2%, 3%. So you pay a 2 or 3% fee and, oh, this is horrible. And, you know, Bitcoin is going to reduce those fees. You want to buy something for Bitcoin that's $100. It could cost you $50 to get that transaction processed. I mean, MasterCard and Visa are so much more efficient than Bitcoin. I mean, Bitcoin is not a payment mechanism, right? I said that from the beginning. But what I also admitted that for criminals, I thought it was good, although I knew that, you know, anything that's online, I mean, it can't be so anonymous. I mean, the government can come in here and figure this out. But the reason I thought that criminals would like Bitcoin, part of the reason I knew that Bitcoin couldn't work as a medium of exchange was because it was too volatile, right? I mean, how could you sell something? You have a lot of businesses that have low margins, right? 2% margin, 5% margin. How can you deal in Bitcoin? How can you sell something for Bitcoin? And then it could drop 10% the day that you, you know, you sell something. You could actually turn a profit into a loss. So I said it's too volatile to be used as a medium of exchange. But I said uh, criminals, for them it doesn't matter. See, if if you're a criminal and you you extort uh, $100,000 and you demand your ransom be paid in Bitcoin, right? And let's say you take the $100,000 worth of Bitcoin, but it drops 20%, you know, before you get a chance to cash it in, right? And so you don't end up stealing 100000 You only end up with 80000 That's fine. That's only a 20% cut for money laundering. I think a lot of criminals are used to paying maybe 50%, right? You steal $100,000, and by the time you launder the money and pay off everybody who helps you, you're left with 50000 at the end of the day, right? You lose half of it, you know, to the people that launder your money. So I thought Bitcoin represented a less expensive way for criminals to launder their money. But if it actually incriminates them, if it actually makes it easier for law enforcement to prosecute them, then, well, there goes your, your use case uh, for, for Bitcoin. But this woman was still trying to talk up Bitcoin because, you know, she's, again, trying to get the institutions involved. And this is the, the, the you know, the, the higher layer of, of the pyramid, right? Because the initial adopters, they 
the way you got them to get in was, oh, this is decentralized. This is outside of the government. You know, this is a, a an alternative currency. We're gonna we're gonna take down the central banks. This is gonna be this new thing. It's unregulated. The government's not involved. You know, oh, there's no futures contracts. I remember people were telling me, oh, I don't want to buy gold because they have futures contracts on gold. I mean, people can manipulate it. I want to buy Bitcoin because there are no futures contracts. Well, now they're saying buy Bitcoin because there's a futures contract. This legitimizes it. This makes it more mainstream. Well, the original reason to buy it was because it wasn't mainstream. Nobody wanted it to be legitimate. They wanted it to challenge the establishment, not be you know, incorporated as part of the establishment. But in order to get the big hedge funds right to invest, you have to mainstream it. You have to get rid of all the features that initially attracted the early adopters. And now what do you have left? You have nothing. You just have you know, the greater fool. What is the the, 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 the value of Bitcoin, the value is some fool is going to come around and pay an even higher price than I did, right? That's it. That's the only value. And people are hoping that the fools are the institutions. The bag holders are going to be the smart money, right? The, the little guys got in early, and now you're going to have a bunch of institutions that are going to bail everybody out. Although I am seeing now, I mean, more and more Europe Pacific Capital clients are calling me. You know, I only had one or two uh, calls over the years of people who told me they wanted to invest in Bitcoin. But over the last month or so, several people are calling up trying to pull out large amounts of money. I think one person even did. I mean, maybe a couple hundred thousand out of an IRA to buy Bitcoin. Now, right, now that it's at 15, 16, 17,000, people are trying to put serious amounts of money. I mean, people weren't calling me three years ago. I mentioned on this podcast, I have a realtor friend of mine asked me about investing in Bitcoin uh, not too long ago. And of course, the price has gone up a lot since then, but she didn't even know what it was. She just heard about it from some friend and she said, well, can I invest in Bitcoin? But I hadn't really had any of my clients, my brokerage clients calling me up wanting to pull money out of their account to buy Bitcoin until just recently. And, you know, the crazy thing is people think they're getting in on the ground floor. I mean, how can something go? I mean, I read if you put, you know, a $1,000 into Bitcoin in like 2011, it's worth like $3 million now. Right. So how can somebody buying now be thinking they're getting in anywhere near the ground floor? Right. I mean, this this everybody is talking about this now, although I know there are people that are still saying, well, it's not a bubble yet because everybody in the planet doesn't own it. Right. I mean, it's only like two percent of the people in the world that even own Bitcoin or if it's even that much. Look, everybody on the planet doesn't have to own it. I mean, you know, Beanie Babies were a bubble. What percentage of the population was involved in Beanie Babies? right? Everybody doesn't have to buy it in order for it to be a bubble, right? Everybody in Holland didn't buy tulips. And of course, the whole world wasn't involved in that tulip mania. It was just a small percentage of the Dutch population. So you pretty much, you got more than enough people uh, involved in this thing for it to be a bubble, right? Not every single person has to get on board in order for it to constitute a bubble. But you know, another point I wanted to follow up on that I made on the uh, my last podcast, just even about blockchain, right? Because if you believe in blockchain, right, which is separate from Bitcoin, I mentioned how other assets could be on a blockchain. You know, central banks could have their currencies on a blockchain. You can have assets. You can have bonds uh, in a blockchain. You can have stock in a blockchain, right? Shares of stock could trade uh, through a blockchain. I mean, I looked up on online, uh, bitshares.com is actually for sale. It's a URL for sale. I mean, who would want to have, who would want to own that, that, that domain, right? BitShares. Well, maybe somebody that was providing a marketplace for crypto stock, right? So IBM, General Motors, Apple Computer, 
if they want to make some of their stock available in crypto form, they could do it. And then you would find exchanges just like they have now for the cryptocurrencies where you could trade shares of stock without a broker, low transaction costs and there. And then if you had somebody who was in a country and they were worried and they wanted to get their money out of the country and they had a choice, well, where do I want to park my money? Should I put it in uh, Apple stock or should I put it in Bitcoin? Well, maybe they'll take Apple stock. I mean, real things have more value than, than digital nothing, right? I'd rather have a digital something than a digital nothing. But I also was thinking about how private companies could use it, right? What about airlines, right? All these airlines have mileage programs. Well, what if instead of just giving you points, they issued digital currency as mileage? And now you could use that digital currency. You could either use it to buy miles, right? To buy a, a, an upgrade or a free ticket, or you can you know, give it to somebody else because they can easily track it because airline miles are worth, I don't know, one penny a mile, two pennies a mile, something like that. But, you know, if somebody owed me $100 and they said, look, I'll give you 10,000 United Airline miles. Sure, I'll take it. I'm, it's, I'm taking, I'll take airline miles at a penny, a penny a mile all day long. I think that's about, you know, they're certainly worth at least a penny a mile. And, and so, yeah, you could put airline miles uh, and everybody could just have an account and you would just own uh, a cryptocurrency that was a United Mile or an American or a Delta. And there you could trade them. There could be a market. Same thing with gift cards. All these companies come out with gift cards. You know, I read how some criminals, drug addicts, are actually using gift cards as, as a currency to buy, to buy drugs. Well, instead of issuing a gift card, a company could just have its own blockchain and it could issue digital currency instead of a gift card. So instead of having a gift card for $100, I had, you know, $100 worth of a digital currency of a particular department store. And now I own that and I can either spend it myself or I can go to the store and I can spend the $100 of digital currency or I can give it to somebody else who knows its value. Hey, I've got, you know, I've got some digital currency for Macy's. I've got Macy's coin. You know, I got $100 worth of Macy's coin. I can, you know, give it to somebody who knows that, well, even if I don't shop at Macy's, I know that Macy's is there and I could take the money and buy whatever I want. So all of these private businesses can come up with digital currencies that anybody can buy all over the world. I mean, even if you live in an area where there are no Macy's stores, you know, somebody, you know, it's worth something because Macy's there. And let, of course, unless Macy's goes out of business, that's your counterparty. Or if you have uh, the mileage from uh, a, uh, an airline, and the airline goes out of business. But of course, you have that risk anyway by having a mileage account. I mean, an airline can go out of business and then you've lost the value of your mileage. So the, the key is, you know, don't you don't want to save it forever. I mean, you'd get the miles and either you'd pass them on to somebody else or you would spend them. But all of that could work, right? That's all that, that those are some of the things that can happen because of blockchain. But the one thing blockchain doesn't need is, is Bitcoin. And I find it extremely interesting that all the features that initially attracted people to Bitcoin have now been abandoned. And the only one left is that it's digital gold because it always goes up. Even though there's nothing that you could use it for because it has no actual use, criminals can't use it, honest people can't use it, but you can hold on to it because everybody's going to want to buy it because it's always going to go up. And again, that's, so that, that's the whole argument. Although I don't want to make this podcast too much about, uh, about Bitcoin. And let me finish up by talking about politics because we had a big political earthquake last night and I had a feeling that this upset was in the making. I never really talked about it, uh, but uh, Doug Jones beat Roy Moore in the Alabama Senate race. And Alabama, of course, is a real red state. I think 
Trump won maybe, what, 70% of the vote in Alabama. And Trump personally campaigned for more. He said he didn't believe the allegations. Of course, you know, Trump really has to stand by more because, you know, he's got the same problem, right? He's got a bunch of women who have made allegations against him. And he says that those women are lying. So, you know, if those women are lying, he's got to be consistent. He can't say that the women that are alleging you know, sexual impropriety for me, they're lying, but when they're saying something similar about somebody else, they're telling the truth. So either you, they're lying or they're telling the truth. So Trump is taking a consistent approach there and all these women are lying, whether they're saying things about me or whether they're saying things about, about Roy Moore. And so Trump went down there and, and campaigned for him, yet he still lost. Now, a lot of people think this is not significant. Well, because, you know, he only lost because of... Um, of, of these allegations. And that's true, all right? Without that, right, if this wasn't part of it, he would have won. But the fact that he could lose in such a Republican state, I mean, you could think, okay, he's not going to win by as wide a margin as he would normally have won. But the fact that he actually lost, to me, shows that there's more going on than just these allegations. And even if these allegations weren't there, I bet. Uh, Roy Moore would have won, but by a much smaller margin uh, than Republicans would have believed. Because it's not, this is just not the only issue that's going on. Uh, Trump is very unpopular, right? His popularity is about as low as it's been. Uh, He's been president for over a year. And while there's a bunch of optimism, nothing has really changed, right? Businesses are still optimistic. Consumers are optimistic, but things have not actually gotten better in the real economy. And I think people are already getting frustrated and their frustrations are going to mount even more uh, next year. And this is going to be problematic for the Republican Party. First, look, they just lost the seat. So now their majority in the Senate is razor thin. It's 51 to 49. Now, yes, you can argue that in two years, when there's another election, Doug Jones is going to lose, right? Because now the Republicans are going to come up with a candidate who's not going to have all this baggage. And it's only going to last for two years. We'll see. We'll see. I mean, that might happen. But there could be a lot of other Republican seats that end up getting lost in 2018. Meanwhile, if they don't pass this tax cut before Christmas, the odds of actually getting it done drop sharply. Because after the new year, uh, Doug Jones is going to take his seat in the Senate. And I don't think they'll be able to pass it because then they can only lose one Republican vote. And we know they've already lost one for sure. But I think there could be another two or three Republicans that end up not voting for this thing. And if that's the case, and you only got 49, even though you have the tiebreak vote by Pence, this thing might not pass. Meanwhile, the market is not even considering this risk, right? The stock market did not sell off at all as a result of the uh, Doug Jones win and the the Roy Moore loss, even though it, it puts into question and into jeopardy not only the tax cuts, but the Republican agenda and the Republicans' ability to maintain the majority in Congress. They could easily lose that in, in 2018. And again, if the economy does what I think it's going to do, and the Democrats take the White House in 2020, then forget, well, these tax cuts are all gone. The first thing they're going to do is raise taxes. Now, I know there are people that are saying, oh, you know, the Democrats, you know, they don't want to jack up taxes. And they talk about, you know, hey, uh, uh, Obama didn't raise them that much. And he even thought about lowering the corporate tax. The The Democratic Party is very different. This is the Bernie Sanders party. 
And that Bernie Sanders party is going to get bigger, even if Bernie Sanders is not leading the charge in 2020. It will be somebody that Bernie Sanders anoints, right? It's going to be somebody that Bernie Sanders puts his seal of approval on. This is not your father's Democratic Party. This is a very liberal Democratic Party. I think the Democratic Party is going to move as much to the left as the Republican Party moved to the right when it elected Ronald Reagan. I've said this before. Donald Trump is Jimmy Carter, only reverse. And when Jimmy Carter inherited a lousy economy uh, from Ford Nixon, and they were the Rockefeller Republicans, and he promised to turn everything around as an outsider, as a peanut farmer, and when it all blew up on his watch, the country went back to the right, except they went way right. They went all the way to Ronald Reagan, who was kind of a Barry Goldwater kind of Republican, right? It was a huge turn to the right. This is going to be the opposite. You have Donald Trump as a Republican inheriting a lousy economy, really, uh, from eight years of Obama, promising to make America great again. It's going to fall apart on his watch. Believe me, these tax cuts are going to get blamed, right? If we cut taxes for corporations and rich people, and then the economy tanks into a recession and the deficits blow up, they're going to say, I told you so. We didn't vote for that. They're going to claim that the economy was great, that Obama handed over a pristine economy to Trump, and he went right back to what Republicans always do, cut taxes on the rich, special interest for big corporations, plunged us into another crisis, and now we go hard left. We go way beyond where Obama was into Bernie Sanders' land. And what are they going to do? First thing we're going to do, we're going to jack up taxes on these greedy rich people that wrecked the economy. We're going to jack up taxes on these corporations. They never gave us the $4,000 a household raise that the Republicans promised. They kept all the money for themselves. They bought that stock. They paid it to the CEOs. We're going to take that money back. Believe me, if the Republicans lose control of the White House and Congress in 2020, the taxes by 2021 on corporations and individuals will be much higher than they are now before the cuts. But you know what's not going to come back? The deductibility of state and local taxes. See, now that the Republicans have, I mentioned this before, they have taken the bait, right? The Democrats never could have got away with doing this, but the Republicans are doing it. But believe me, when they jack up taxes, when they take the marginal tax rate up to 50% or 60%, they are not going to restore the deductibility of your state and local income taxes. So it's going to be a double whammy. Remember what I said about the camel's nose under the tent. Once you make that mistake, that's it. And this time it's the Republicans that have taken the bait. They've done this. The Democrats are happy about this. Believe me, they want to soak the rich. They, they're just happy to have the Republicans pour all the rain, right? They, they, they get all the blood on their hands. But believe me, when once they're in power, they are not going to cut taxes on the rich, even the rich people in their own state. Because you know what? They don't care about that. Right? Yeah, they're going to have some special tax breaks in for their donors, but they're happy to soak the rich, even if the rich live in their own state.